All right, so uh, welcome to the final reading session of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm reading group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, so we'll read the last bit of the book today, uh, and then we'll have one more session for uh, concluding thoughts uh, to wrap things up. Uh, yeah, so I think that we uh, left off uh, basically at the start of page 391. Um, so I'll just I'll just read the uh, preceding paragraph and then we'll go from there because uh, it has a little bit of a preamble. It starts with a block quote on 391. Um, <clears throat> reviewing the two preceding paragraphs and apart from noting their author's uncharacteristic propensity propensity to be shocked, nothing is clear beyond the absolute necessity to think in terms of entelechy rather than prediction of realizing potential rather than concocting technique-oriented plans. Significantly, both Chile and India had ambitious national plans which failed. The Chilean case has already been reviewed. India had one of the earliest plans to fail in the free world, and this happened despite its having been directed by a man of brilliance. Uh, Mahalanobis, who might... Uh, well, have also been a saint. We must not minimize, therefore, the problem of choice in developmental technology, and the sense in which that problem is bound into the homeostasis of unfolding crisis that, uh, sorry, we must not minimize, therefore, the problem of choice in developmental technology and the sense in which that problem is bound into the homeostasis of unfolding crisis has surely been established above. Then now, perhaps, is the moment to restore the balance, as the personal story of my own modus vivendi tried to do in adumbration, by considering the sense in which any particular technology, in this examination called automation, may also be irrelevant to the problems of humankind. So then we go to the block quote. This sketch of an automated factory does not dwell lovingly on the colossal achievements of engineering, on the lines of transfer machines, on the huge electronic information handling systems. Perhaps we have congratulated ourselves enough on these advances already. The sketch is drawn at a deeper level. It is a picture of an industrial society undergoing a second industrial revolution a society which has focused its attention on a particular and narrow manifestation of its own inventive ability in the belief that this manifestation, automation, constitutes the revolution. This is a society with a sense of unease, sometimes amounting to guilt about its own future, because it is creating for itself problems which it cannot honestly say it knows how to handle, Problems which have a significance deeper than engineering or economics can bestow. Further on, I am not attacking automation. I am attacking the apotheosis of automation. We constantly hear about the automotive, or sorry, about the automotive. Excuse me. We constantly hear about the automotive significance of the silicon chip of microprocessors. The above quotations reflect doubts about the relevance of automotive technology to the underlying nature of the problem. Yet it has just been argued that technology inheres in and helps to impart form to that problem. The quotation ends. Cybernetics is about all manner of control, all kinds of structures, all sorts of system. Automation belongs here but to the science of cybernetics as a thinking tool for solving the control problem that besets industry, automation is irrelevant. The speaker, then, was not talking about the system in which technology inheres. He was indicating an entelechy. He was not, moreover, talking about microprocessors, but about the newly emerged transistors. For the date was September 1958, and the occasion was the Second International Congress on Cybernetics. 
the title of the plenary address was indeed The Irrelevance of Automation. What was true then of automative transistors is true now of automative microprocessors. They radically restructure the problem-solution homeostat. What was true then and remains true now about cybernetics as a thinking tool is that the principles and laws of the science always obtain, whatever the technology through which they are disported. Until this is clearly perceived, then there is only, and nonsensically, good or bad technology. Afterwards, there is technological choice, at the behest of good or bad people. May they choose well. It must be bad manners to quote approvingly one's own words that have gathered the dust of more than 20 years, but it is necessary to demonstrate consistency and also to renounce an undeserved reputation for belief in technocracy. This recent comment is typical. They appear to think that you're saying that if the world would just give you a computer, you'd solve its problems, Marx said. Thank God I'm not a Marxist. Well, it seems... I am not a Berian. The enquiry on technological method, in short, is long. To presses that this, uh, excuse me, to presses the approach presented here, we should look first to the entelechy, then consider the problem-solution homeostat and the range of possible technologies that relate it to that entelechy. The objective is to offer choice. And that is to say exactly the same thing as this. Let the number of possible states of the system proliferate that will at least make available requisite variety. There is only one more matter of substance to review, namely the dynamics of these relationships. The question of speed has several times been raised, and that may have appeared to advocate the quick flash of the coup. Not so. The problem-solution homeostat is central to the issue of speed because it has its own dynamic, although this is subject to modification by the mass media, as we saw earlier. Uh, so if any, any points about the, the previous couple paragraphs here? Uh, Shane, go ahead. And then we'll go to Jake. You're muted, Shane. Fuck, I, cl I clicked the wrong goddamn button again. Um, yeah, just um, that it, this, this paragraph's interesting in that um, it's this reassertion again at, a, at an even higher level of Ashby's Law, right? That, like, beer is always pointing us towards, like, giving ourselves maximum number of choices available, even at this very high strategic level of, like, you know, keep your eye on the IntelliKey and then give yourself options in the strategic and technical space for how to go about that. And again, Ash Ashby always gets the last laugh, right? That, like... A system with more options available to itself will tend to persist, uh, and so it's just—it's interesting that Beer keeps reiterating this as as far up the stack as we've climbed by this point. Um, Ashby's law is still in effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, definitely agree with that. Um, and then I also just really like to to briefly talk about this this sort of few paragraphs before this class two. You know, I think the. It's like a really important point, and and I mean, it you know just ties to the whole like saying he's not a Berian, you know, and it's something I've encountered when just like the sort of concept. I think people are very unfamiliar with cybernetics, you know, and so they assume that it means the sort of technocracy and like oh well, machines will just replace things, and then you know, magic of machines will happen, and and we'll get the things we want. Um, you know, it's like a very like. <laughs> It's like, uh, you know, you, you sort of, like, come so far around in the, like, cybernetic thinking that you're, like, bashing on machines again, you know? Like, actually, like, don't just use t technology for everything. Like, for the sake of technology, like, you have to consider what it's used for and how it helps you, like, actually, like, like fulfill the potential that you're trying to do. You know, like, not let it uh, sort of take the reins, as it were, and, like, subsume your your goals to that of like whatever technology you have to be using at the time um yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh it's a point that comes up in marx but uh certainly also we covered it when we talked about feenberg on giu um 
technical code and that kind of stuff. It's it's all very uh, in sync with each other. Uh, Boast uh, asked a question about where these block quotes were coming from. Uh, Beard does a weird thing where he provides the citation after the quote. So it's it's uh, the irrelevance of automation, which was a address that he gave in 1958. Um, I believe is uh, what the, the the source is there, just to show that like, oh yeah, like we just had like super basic ass uh, transistors back then, uh, and now we have microprocessors. But the point remains the same. The point hasn't changed because, you know, these questions of intellect are indifferent to the like the to the specifics of the technology. <clears throat> OK, um, so uh, let's continue then. Uh, please consider this series of points. Number one. The speed of events as perceived determines the rate at which the continuous cycling problem-solution homeostat must work, if it is to be an effective regulator. Number two, most existing administrative systems in all kinds of institution have not been designed to operate at this pace and cannot adapt to it. Then the alternatives are to redesign those systems or to bypass them. The first alternative has nowhere, to my knowledge, been tried in government. At least, redesign there certainly has been, uh, but without regard to cybernetic canon. Point three. All viable systems are autopoetic, which is to say that part of their activity is necessarily devoted to the homeostasis of their own internal organization. They produce themselves, see chapter 19. If more than necessary effort goes into this task, however, the autopoetic system may be called pathological, see the heart of enterprise for the arguments. When this condition, excuse me, when this condition obtains, and it appears to be pandemic, the energy that drives the problem-solution homeostat will be absorbed to some degree by the cancerous autopoiesis. The homeostat will then slow down and may become ineffectual. Point four. Communications between managers, ministers, and their administrators depend absolutely on adequate variety reduction, and this is technologically undernourished at the best of times. The memoirs of senior ministers in successive British governments, moreover, continually assert, my terminology of course, that this transduction is actively thwarted by a civil service propensity to invent filters designed to reduce the variety that the minister can recognize in problem-solution homeostasis. On the face of it, this should speed things up. In practice, it is more likely to produce deadlock, albeit rapidly, because of the loss of regulatory requisite variety. Point five. The principle of minimum, excuse me, the principle of minimum dissipation states that among the set of movements that have passed through the filter of other selection principles, that particular movement is realized which produces a minimal increase in entropy. Nature is thus organized in such a way that two mutually complementary processes continually take place, namely a continuous growth in disorganization, which is measured by entropy, and a counterbalancing striving to maintain organization, which is expressed in the laws of conservation and in the principle of minimum dissipation. Uh, this is N.N. Moisev speaking of the USSR Academy of Science as translated by P.I. Meadow of York University, Ontario. Uh, so this uh, preceding quote about the principle of minimum dissipation is from uh, N.N. Moisev, not from Beer. 
According to this principle, when it operates through the filtration system uh, mentioned in the preceding point, we must expect a reinforcement of the tendency towards pathological autopoiesis. The series of five points has been presented in this pithy form, whereas whole chapters could have been written about each, because their net impact is sufficiently clear. These are some of the interrelated cybernetic mechanisms that bear upon our capacity to do anything at all that will affect change, and the outlook is bleak, particularly in crisis mode. Ponderous theory is moreover borne out by instant experience whenever a new leadership or novel policy is installed. It seems to be generally accepted in the public mythology that there is a honeymoon period during which all is sweetness. Give them a chance. And journalists present statements about the first hundred days. After that, the criticism begins to mount. This is surely not because the public, still less their hard-bitten media folk, have genuinely been seduced by the initial propaganda, nor is it because the new approach was honestly tried and honestly failed. It is simply because the system opposing change, see the five points, is instantly denatured by the sheer novelty of fresh inputs. It does not know how to react because it needs time to translate and reclassify. As soon as it understands the new language, syntax, and grammar, it can succeed once more in preventing the problem-solution homeostat from effective regulation. Uh, <clears throat> if this is what happens, it is certainly a signal to the innovators to act fast. The argument might well have been elaborated then under the first sectional heading, The Cybernetics of Crisis. It has been reserved to conclude the section, uh, excuse me, to conclude the second section called the Cybernetics of Progress instead. And you may think remarkably to complete a subsection on technological method. This is by no means an oversight. Please consider in just this context a strong and contentious issue as it was manifested in Chile. If we denounce technocracy, if we put human values first, if we look preferentially to cybernetic principle rather than to technological convenience, then maybe it was a mistake to bother with electronics and computers and futuristic-looking operations rooms. Perhaps these were merely frills. After all, the basic success was due more to organizing structural variety than to anything else. In that case, a final chapter called Prospectus should discount the technological element and concentrate on people first and people structures second. New paragraph. This previous paragraph has weight and should stand there on its own for due consideration. It was a very good case to make, and my own psyche leans towards it. Nevertheless, on balance, I disbelieve its humanistic promise. The reason why finally explains the pacing of this, excuse me, the reason why finally explains the placing of this argument in this section. The requirement for speed in the operation of the problem solution homeostat makes this outstandingly a technological issue. If we are to redesign all our administrative systems, then we must choose and choose with care the technology on which that redesign will be based. It may certainly be hoped that this contention does not, in the limit, conflict with the humanitarian position just expressed. Tools of some kind are essential, ran the argument previous to that, and the nature of the tools chosen will condition every solution. Let us then preserve the possibility of choice, but not neglect to make it. And let us not fail to make use of advanced technology simply because it's very mentioned is anathema to those whom it affrights. All right. Uh, who's got something to say about this section? Um, I personally thought that the uh, the point about um, the classification of novelty uh, was very uh, pertinent to the George Floyd uh, uprising and how it was handled. It was like, uh, yeah, there's the honeymoon period and then it's classified and dealt with. Uh, let's go to Jake and then Matt. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, when he when he wrote about the like first one hundred days thing, it's like the the immediate connection to Biden and the Biden presidency has come up because it's very very clear that like oh there isn't really even that that uh, reclassification thing. You know, like the kids are still in cages; they're just from a different supply. Well, I don't even know if they're from a different supplier. They're like just called something different and got a new fresh coat of paint, like or something. Um, so yeah, that's pretty ridiculous for sure. Um, I, I like the, the point about the speed of events kind of um, really being the deciding factor when it comes to, um, you know, whether an organization can handle crisis. And I'm sorry if there's a lot of noise in the back, I'm here. Um, um, yeah, it's, you know, it kind of goes back to the, like when he talked about the sort of uh, model of, a syst- of systems in crisis where, you know, the, the, the time limiter... Or the, the, the fact that everyone is is encountering this the crisis at the same time, and that time is happening is like the limiter on you know how a system can deal with it. You know, it's like it's you don't have infinite time to just wait and slowly deliberate using the old methods or whatever methods exist. You have to like figure out if like uh, things aren't um. You know, if your system's not set up to handle, like, the necessary discussion, right? Like, if there's, for example, not, like, some ability to call, like, emergency meetings of leadership, you know, it's just like, oh, well, we have to wait until our next meeting in a, in a month uh, to discuss this. It's like that you, you, you'll be so incapable of handling crisis, you know. But if you're able to, then it becomes a lot more possible, although it definitely still puts a lot of strain on the people who are trying to deal with that. I know I've encountered this in my own organization, uh, recently just had a, a meeting run an hour over time last night because we like the people weren't able to like I don't know if it was like you know the the requisite variety wasn't there right like people didn't quite gasp grasp the like necessity of of intervention needed or or what but then like once they did then it's like okay now let's like keep talking for an hour um uh to, to deal with this and like, let's also have an emergency meeting on Sunday and, and next week when we were normally supposed to meet, you know, so it's like, I'm glad people are dealing with it, but it's frustrating when, when like for myself, it's, it's been frustrating to try and get people to like deal with problems before they become like crunch time. But then it's like, they don't really take it seriously until it gets to that point. And then it's like, Oh, well let's take it seriously. And I'm like, Oh, this, you know, so it's like a frustrating thing, but you know, kind of points to the whole requisite variety. I think where, it's easier, especially if there's not that requisite variety for people to be like, well, how serious is it really? Like, how much do we really need to deal with it? Probably not much because there's just like, you know, some small number of things that were on the agenda or things that were reported or something. And then like you kind of get the right people in, in a virtual room together or whatever. And you're like, oh, well, actually, the scope of it is kind of larger than any of us had realized, you know, so you know, maybe there's some failure on my part to, like, communicate that requisite variety, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm just talking about my own <laughs> experiences rather than this, this point, but I, I think um, the point about, like, needing to have quick communication and decision-making, like, is really tied to the technology. I think that's, you know, I guess thinking about it more, it could be kind of why, like, I know a lot of my organizing stuff, like, happens just via signal, because it is like a really quick uh, like method of communication and it's very easy technologically. So there's low barrier to entry and it's like very quick, but it just, it has these problems associated with it. You know, the sort of like the shape of the technology, the technology itself shapes the nature of the solution. Um, and it kind of is one of those things that like cuts down a variety pretty big because you only really see the things that can be like typed up on your phone and that are like, that have happened since the last time you looked at it, like anything before then is basically just like lost to time, even if it's not technically lost, you know, it's just like so ethereal. Um, so that's like definitely a problem that I've encountered and one that is really worth worth considering these things that you're bringing up. Yeah, um, you know, like one interesting point in that regard is like the degree to which in like the the quote unquote dark ages, like a lot of 
Roman technique was still understood, but was useless because the means of communication had broken down. So, like, it's like, well, we could do things the Roman way, but the Roman way was designed to operate according to, like, this ability to coordinate across the empire, and that doesn't exist anymore. So we're going to have to do something different, which is typically to find innovative ways to pillage what the Romans built. Um, so, <laughs> or not pillage, but like repurpose, I guess is the correct term. Like, you know, break down structures, rebuild something new out of them. Um, but yeah, that was made, that was just based on the speed of communication was the primary determinant there more so than anything else. It wasn't because people suddenly just like forgot everything that happened, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. Um... Okay, let's go to Shane and then Matt. Yeah, um, I kind of I really like this this bit towards the end here where Beer kind of lays it out that like we should be focusing first and foremost on the people structures, like the social technology. Like ultimately, this that ends up not really being about technology at all. It's about the social organization. But then, uh, so the, the principles of cybernetics point us in that direction, but they also tell us that speed is extremely important. And so we need to use technology to gain appropriate speed or appropriate variety. Um, and so then we choose the technology. We sort of firstly leave our choices open at the technological level and then choose the technologies that help us out with regards to speed and assisting in the, the structure of the organization that you've got. Um, but yeah, just kind of riffing, riffing on um, Jake's point, right? Like, I mean, this this is kind of a problem, right? With with um, especially this tendency to like in in contemporary organizing to just lean on things like Signal or Telegram or Slack or Discord or whatever because they're the things that are immediate and easy and like everyone's familiar with them, but they may not in fact actually suit the the solution at all. And so you end up with your human organizing efforts actually being shaped by the tool. It's like your hand is changing to fit the tool rather than the tool changing to fit your hand. Um, but that can be a very hard pitch to like, hey, we should use something more suitable because the immediate response is always like, oh, but this is the easiest thing. This is the most available thing. This is the thing that like, because, because we assume that like, and it can in fact actually be the case that like the people we're trying to organize it with simply will not use anything other than WhatsApp. Like, it's just, like, the immediacy has to be the thing. And so, yeah, what, what a trap to be in, right, where we know we, know we need these kinds of, these kind of, like, social structures, but the, the shape of the landscape, we're in, we're in this valley where um, we can't seem to climb up the sides purely because, like, the statistical probability of action always points down into the valley again because nobody will, will install an app aside from Slack on their phones, you know? Um, but... I don't know, Beer's point here is great, right? That, like, you know, the, the cybernetic stuff is actually all about the social technology, like the, 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 the structures of human society, um, and that the tech is a secondary consideration, but it's an important one because the tech has to actually facilitate. Like, you're, you're not going to be able to organize a contemporary, um, I don't know, workers' party based on, like, sending letters to each other. You're not going to be able to calculate a modern economy on an abacus, um, but the abacus is never the point. Um, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, basically points to the problems of, like, Soviet cybernetics, right? Is that, like, the intellect. <laughs> well, yeah. well, but, the, the, <laughs> you know, they, they could have built better computers, but the intellect mm -hmm. was never there. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, the problem solution homeostat was fucked in the first place. I love this term, you know, like that's coming up here at the end, the problem-solution homeostat, because ultimately the problem-solution space has to come to balance with, its, with, with itself and to each other, right? Um, but there's a dialectic there, right? There's, there's a kind of back and forth of like the, um, the available solutions shape what problems we can entertain and the problems shape the kind of solutions we can entertain. Um, and I, I kind of love his, his, his way again of like skipping up the levels. Because we, we've gone from like homeostats at low levels all the way up to this like very abstract kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a Deleuzian thing, right? The, the interaction of the virtual and the actual as like 
an ongoing process, or like it's it's nearly um it's nearly a kind of a riff on a Hegelian sort of thing, right? A kind of ongoing emergent homeostat that pulls itself into reality. Um, mm-hmm. And be- beer beer can effortlessly skip up these levels just of abstraction um, and kind of make make it make it work all the way up. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think there, there's been a lot of appropriate um, uh, um, uh, stuff in leftist circles about saying, oh, you know, it's, it's not about a technical quick fix. But, you know, actually, in, in a lot of cases, you know, the, the, their, uh, yeah, the, the choice of technology actually does make a very big difference. Like one, one thing I'm doing um, uh, is, uh, um, you know, moving a lot of stuff from like uh, uh, Google Sheets to uh, um, Airtable, partially because, like, if you've got more than four people using a spreadsheet, I mean, like, you're just guaranteed to, you know, someone's just going to hit the wrong button, it's going to destroy, you know, a bunch of cells uh, uh, downstream. And, uh, you know, actually con- kind of consciously applying this and using a lot of variety reduction that, in general, people should be interacting with forms that then, you know, um, uh, 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 you know d- uh, do, th- do things on the back end, you know, not too many moving parts. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, I think it's actually more important with something where every pretty much everyone's a volunteer. You know, I mean, when you've got, you know, like, people who are sitting in an office all day, and, you know, only doing X amount of work, like it might be a pain in the ass, but like they actually can email back and forth a couple of times, you know, and fix things. Uh, but, you know, if, if most of the people that are going to be helping are only have like, I don't know, three hours during the week, like, you know, uh, to, to do anything, like stuff has to be really frictionless. Um, uh, and so, yeah. Um, what's it? Uh, um, uh, and they think the uh, uh, yeah the 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 the, the bit of the government ministers is, is also interesting because just like yeah this is the era of yes minister which you know it's kind of that right propaganda but I mean you know is like also also making a point um uh, uh, and you know the variety reduction actually is important yeah I mean, it's not even just ministers are like are, you know, or that, that the you know high level civil servants are uh, um uh, uh you know hiding information it's that they actually do need to filter it in some way. And so, and, and uh, uh, yeah, like filtering it in a way that actually allows you know ministers to make the kind of policy decisions that you know they want to. I mean, like that's that's it's complicated. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, also, with yeah, well, like contrasting like the um, the Soviet cybernetics versus like uh, um, you know like the cyber, you know, cyberneticians and uh, uh, information theorists in the U.S. I mean, like they actually did like uh, um, get the the, the intellect. I mean. Uh, um, Eisenhower actually like really you know he really liked uh, ARPA and you know he became its personal patron you know and uh, yeah the, the, the American research establishment and, and bureaucracy you know hated ARPA for the exact same reasons that you know like like uh, the Soviet ones uh, didn't like Glushkov and uh, um, uh, uh, his whole thing it's just that for one you know I mean they, they actually captured you know the in- the intellect of the organization to one degree or another but also I think you know uh, and that uh, raises some interesting questions of how do you actually shift into like you for a large organization? I guess, you know, to some degree, I mean, courtier, courtier games actually kind of kind of are part of it if you don't really have like a democratic base. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I mean, those, those are sort of the two different ways to go about it traditionally, right? Is, is either you do reform from above or you do reform from below. Um, uh, all right, Boast, go ahead. So I'm going to take the privilege that since we're kind of getting to the end of this, uh, opening ourselves up to more like long rip moments. Um, this, when he was like going through those, uh, the points that he was mentioning and when he was talking about pace, it gave me a lot of flashbacks to the socialist calculation debate because the whole idea was just like, we want to get the right price, right? And we can either have this ad hoc calculation mechanism in the market that's always going to be churning and creating prices, or we can have that ad hoc computer system trying to keep up and create prices before they occur in the market. And it's it's interesting to me because I feel like that has a parallel with not just like the state regulating prices, but how any control system works where like one person has to control multiple people. So like, let's say that I'm in charge of five different people. Um, if I had one of these people that I had to kind of like send out and do something, I would have to have some, you know, very nice technology available to constantly be in communication with them, constantly be informing them, constantly being able to assess their situation, or I could trust them. Trust in this case would be a social technology. It's kind of like spooky action at a distance. As long as there's some relationship between me and that person that I can invest myself in and know will have like some predictable outcomes, I can put them in situations where I don't have any contact with them. I don't have any uh, kind of classical sense of control. Um, 
which kind of goes back to like how we want to do market regulation. Market regulation can't be like, you know, getting into every 7-Eleven and making sure that all the Arizona iced teas are, you know, 99 cents. You have to have systems of trust and uh, mutual social reproduction that keep things in line so that you can have that, you know, spooky action at a distance where you're not in this zip code controlling how things happen, but you have a sense of trust that you know what's going to happen and you can predict things accordingly. Definitely kind of a little bong rip moment because I'm not sure if I understand a couple of those things entirely. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we've we've had a lot of uh, sort of um, debates in the Emancipation Network uh, uh, Discord about um, planning. Uh, and I haven't followed them super closely, uh, myself, but I believe that, you know, a lot of what people are saying is brought to that question from, uh, by the Burian perspective is that like emphasis on trust, the emphasis on social coordination, which you see in like, um, you know, in, in cockshot is, is largely hand waved. It's like, the, yeah, there's like some surveillance technologies and there are some like uh, market-like incentives that condition actors, but that's pretty much all that it's discussed um, there. Uh, whereas like beer is, is much more concerned with that question. Um, uh, so yeah, so I think this, this trust question, uh, social engineering question is really important um, for sure. Uh, Shane, go ahead. So, yeah, I think what, what both brought up there is really important and um, is not, not as bond grip as, as it seems, right? Because this whole thing about um, trust and, like, kind of, I guess, brain entanglement at a distance, it actually takes us right back to the very beginnings of this this field, right? That, like, this is one of the things that Wiener is actually quite concerned with right up front, right? That, like, for, for him, control and communication is all about uh, coordinating behavior over distances, Right, like communication happens. It, it, it's weird because, like, I think for for Wiener, the information is almost like a residue that's left behind by coordinated action, or it, it's a kind of like grease that coordinates action. So the information is never really the point; it's the coordinated action um, that's the point, right? And like, um, like in the history of like information theory, there's an interesting example with like the telegraph, right? Like the the or, or the Morse codes for the telegraph that. People struggled to understand what those, those machines even were while they were building them. But somebody made a really good, a good sort of, um, they did a line that really helped people like along to think about this. Is like, you're not sending anything. You're not sending anything anywhere. It's, it's not like you're posting a letter. Like, cause that, that's the, the metaphor people had in their heads. They were, they were sending a message, right? Like, as if it was a letter wrapped in an envelope. No, 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 no. These two machines have been coerced into, um, replicating each other's movements at a distance. That's what communication is. It's the replication of motion over distance. So yeah, like trust synchronizes brains over distance and does it autonomously and does it in a distributed fashion. It's the most relevant thing in the world to cybernetics. And it's, it's, it's right at the very beginning of the field. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, isn't the uh, app icon for Telegram a paper airplane? It's a paper airplane, yeah. Yeah, so they never really got that point. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, like <laughs> it's still, the still the easiest way to understand messaging is apparently I'm going to send a paper airplane letter to you. <laughs> yeah, right, because like, I have a book here about like the history of information theory, and like that problem haunted them all the way along, right? That like everyone just couldn't get the like posting a letter metaphor out of their heads. There's, there's an interesting anecdote of like... Um, some German grandma showing up at like a telegram office with um, a parcel of food to send to her, her grandson at the front. And she was, Aww. and they were like, we, we can't do that. And she's like, what do you mean? He was sent there via telegram. Wow. You so know? like it's, it's, so it's she like, thought it was a teleporter. Yeah. 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 But like, and just like, I think the, the, the author was bringing up these examples just to co concretize just how hard these concepts were. And that, People, people couldn't stop thinking about it in, in terms of like sending objects over the wire. But they really had to eventually understand it was coordinating objects using a wire. That's what it was really about. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there was no, no movement as such. It was just, 
weirdly, these two distant machines are behaving in such a way that um, one of them replicates what the other is doing, and so they're basically coordinated. It's like a dance, like a tango or something. It's like the, the, the dancers are not exchanging danceulons or dance particles, danceicules between themselves. There's no exchange happening. It's coordination. That's what the information is. And the yeah. information that you might, the information you would perceive is a kind of grease or a residue of the coordination. Yeah. yeah totally relevant stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it, it sort of gets to why like mass, uh, mass dancing, uh, or, uh, mass performance was so, um, such an obsession in uh, state socialist regimes, um, uh, or still is in North Korea, I guess. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, I was. Uh, it just makes me think about how, in at least when I was in Prague uh, in the early two thousands, around the turn of the century, um, they had this enormous uh, stadium there that was built exclusively for the purpose of like socialist coordination displays. Um, and they had no use for it under capitalism. <laughs> they, like there was no sporting event that was sufficiently grandiose to make it worthwhile using it. So they're just like, I, I don't know what to do with this like megalithic structure. Uh, yeah. Very, very funny. Um, yeah. Apparently, uh, North North Korea has the the largest stadium in the world uh, in order to perform its like incredibly elaborate coordination displays. Um, but yeah, yeah, so it's an interesting point. Um, okay, let's uh, let's let's wrap it. Um, uh, the cybernetics of prospectus, final section of the book, subsection. Uh, cybernetics, remember, is the science of effective organization. The question arose when this chapter was planned. What is the effective organization of a prospectus? The provisional answer was to say, list all the questions to which the Chilean experience gives rise and try to answer them on, that, on the basis. This we learned how to do better next time. It turns out that not a single question can even be clearly formulated, much less answered, without specifying an attendant set of circumstances in great detail. Unless this were a merely theoretical exercise then, or perhaps a novel, it would be necessary to predict a future that is known only to God. Managers, their staffs, and their scientific aides ought to be problem solvers, not fortune tellers. In this chapter, therefore, we have studied the effective organization of a progress that cannot be determined in vacuo, and also the effective organization of the crisis in which that progress is likely to be embedded. In any real-life situation, then, we should expect to interpret the cybernetics of the viable system as understood through either the neurocybernetic model of this book or the a prioristic model of the heart of the enterprise in terms of the potentiality dormant in its actuality. This is the prospectus of the entelechy. The futurological prospectus does not have requisite variety. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I really like that last bit. I mean, you know, of course, it's going to end it on a good, good, uh, good line. But you know, I really like that idea of, of um, you know, kind of coming to the understanding of what it means to sort of fulfill the the soul of of the organization, fulfill the goals that people have in mind when creating it, and the reason why they stay together in, in the organization as a product of the things that it does. And the information that it has on hand and not some like future, uh, you know, here's what we're going to be going towards. And, and of course, that means that anything we do is by definition going towards it and we're going to get there eventually. Just trust us, guys, uh, you know, which is so common among, uh, well, I mean, among organizations generally, I guess you could say. But for sure, like among like uh, attempts to, to, you know, create like a socialist future or communism or whatever. Um, so it really like, again, is that kind of like sober reflection of like, you know, 
we need to to bring together the things that we have and the 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 not like the knowledge that we're gathering the information that we can that we have and and the humans that make up this like organization you know and, and kind of like get from them the sort of what it means what the organization means and it, you know it also goes back to the sort of quote of you know that quote of uh, the, the the point of a system is what it does you know it's like the soul, the the sort of entelechy of the system is the entelechy of the people in the, in the system. You know, um, I think is a maybe a good way of saying it, um, or at least that's kind of how my, I'm understanding it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Good. <laughs> this is definitely the longest reading group that I've been in, but I, I think it's it's really um, helped me learn a lot about this book. I, I feel very much like I've got a better understanding of of it from this like really deep deep reading. <laughs> For sure, for sure. Um, Sheen, go ahead. I think it's kind of interesting, right, that, like, Beer says that, like, going into this chapter, trying to write it, he was trying to do the whole, hey, look, this is this is what we learned how to do better next time, which I think is the thing we, I mean, on the Emancipation Network, we get up to this shit all the time, right, like, reading evolutionary strategy or whatever. Um, but in the wider, like, Marx has left, it's, it's a lot of this dwelling on you know, who who exactly had the right line or was was Kowski really an asshole or whatever, this kind of shit. Like, and then Beer kind of concludes that, like, ah, there wasn't much we could really draw from it because everything is contextual in its own context. Um, and I don't know, like, I mean, that's, just, that's just another phrasing of... It, it gives more sort of clarity to my niggling sort of worries about the amount of effort we expend on trying to, like work out who came off better in some exchange of letters between Russian prisons or whatever, this kind of bullshit. Um, we, we would be better off making ourselves better problem solvers in the moment rather than like getting a catalog of problems that, that went wrong previously with the hope that they would, they would work out in, in the moment. But having said that, like the only way we could come to that conclusion was by trying to, trying to, um, to, 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 to look at the problem. Um, so it's not like it's a, t a total waste of time either, but just like re-emphasizing again at the end of the book, you, you got to be adaptive in the moment and actually be good at pro solving problems. It, it's much more like a, a jazz improvisation kind of problem, right? You're not going to be memorizing the sheet music for the orchestral performance. You're going to be learning how to improvise well in this key and with this set of instruments. Um, also, you know, what have, I, what have I been saying all along? Ashby gets the last laugh. The future logical prospectus does not have requisite variety. He gets the last line of the fucking of the whole fucking book. Um. Yeah, I mean, I am currently sort of like working in the future's world, and this point obviously haunts the entire field, right? That well, whatever futures you come up are not going to have requisite variety. It's just not possible. Um, so. I think that, um, what, uh, sorry, so what, um, we can, uh, do with futures, um, or with utopias for that matter, uh, such as, you know, like plans for, uh, like, uh, constructs for, uh, socialist planning um, is try to better understand the potentiality dormant in the actuality. That's the best we can do. Because, like, our response to a situation is largely conditioned by our imagination. And our imagination is based on a combination of our perception and memory. So I think that's why people are obsessed with going back to the early 20th century and looking at, you know, which of the Bolsheviks was the good one uh, or whatever. Uh, because memory is a big part of the framework we have to work with this. Uh, it's a big thing that informs our imagination. Like, you know, Mike Duncan's most recent episode of Revolutions, uh, as of this recording, was the one about Stalin's bank robbery uh, shenanigans. Um, 
And it was like, you know, listening to a detailed account of that was quite interesting as far as like, well, where did all this go wrong? Because the usual story we get is like, ah, Stalin was a bank robber. And it's like, okay, cool. And that's the end of it. Um, like, wow, what a badass. Uh, and uh, it's true. He was a badass. Uh, he was really good at bank robbing. Uh, but the thing was that it didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't really do them any good in the end, actually. Because all they were able to steal were marked banknotes, and uh, that meant that actually all this money they stole was completely worthless. Um, so, you know, maybe there's some lessons you could take from that. I don't know. Uh, it's It might be worth examining. It might inform our imagination of the future. Uh, but it's also useful to extend our sensory perception of the present, and indeed to sort of engage in scenarios thinking or pathways thinking uh, or utopian speculation in order to better understand the potentiality of the present, uh, not to predict the actuality of the future, right? Because we don't have requisite variety to do that. And it's just a fact. It just, we just, we just can't. Uh, you might hit upon something approximating an answer, but chances are you aren't because you don't have the variety. Um, okay, let's go to uh, Shane and then Jake. Yeah, I guess I mean, it kind of calls back to probably even the very first episode of GIU, right? Like, I think um, that whole thing of, like, pressing on lines of flight, that, that sort of borrowed concept from the losing lottery, right? Like, kind of mm-hmm. recognizing what kind of pressure points and, and lines of flight exist in the moment. Um the, the thing with memory is quite interesting, right? Because I think um, maybe, yeah, part of our obsession with the early 20th century is we have a lot of access to that in, in recorded history. Like, we have more access to the Bolsheviks than they had to Marx. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, context. yeah, easily. And easily. so, you know, we, 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 all, we don't tend to think ter- terribly much about, you know, blank spot in history that we don't have terribly much information on because, eh, there's no information. Um, but yeah, for, for, for recognizing the potentiality and stuff, just kind of like, I was ruminating on this, the, the, the jazz metaphor might actually be very productive there because, um, you know, I mean, it's this classic, like, split, right, in music, like, you've the, the sort of classical or symphony guys who, like, just take the sheet music as it's written and then play it, um, versus, like, jazz is the very antithetical to that. It's like, a really good jazz musician takes a, a skeleton of a tune, like Autumn Leaves, and then imagines all the possible variations that can happen out of it. They see the tune not as an authoritative work, um, but they see it as a, a seedbed for for play and for for emergence. Um, and really good musicians kind of Im- Im- approach their development this way that like they become mechanically extremely skilled at their instruments. But when it comes to musical pieces, they, they learn the skeletons of pieces. They learn the general outlines of what autumn le- leaves feels like. Um, the standards, the standards, right? But it, it, it's it's very skeletal. Like they're they're not memorizing note for note how to play it, right? They're memorizing the skeleton of it, and then in the moment they're actualizing the potential that they see is latent in the skeleton of the piece. Um, it's an extremely different mindset from that of like classical music or whatever. Um, I mean, you see you see the same thing in blues as well. Like we have like endless reinterpretations of the the same standards, right? Um, and that kind of generative imaginative um, attitude is probably the one we should try to borrow here. And that, 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 that rhymes with your, what you're saying about the futures thing, right? Um, yeah. Imagining our way out, uh, but creatively and generatively, um, you know. And that, that's probably the, the, the degree of like, studying history that we should look to as well. Like, look, look for the skeletons of patterns, you know. Don't, don't try to learn autumn leaves precisely as it was played by um, a cannonball Adderley or anything like that on a particular date. Learn the skeleton of the of the, the, the chord progression and then imagine what it would be after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the question of what we can actually learn from history is a really interesting one uh, because in the moment, it's always like, uh, like, you know, uh, like Panacook already told Lenin that... Uh, like you can't take the solution that was effective in one context and generalize it to a, a one that is quite different. Uh, you know, or many of the, 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 the European social Democrats are like, well, yeah, but like Russian empire is very different than where we're operating. So maybe those ideas aren't going to work in exactly the same way. Um, 
But I know, like, it's like, does that actually decide the matter just because you found, like, a slam dunk in the historical record? Uh, is that, like, a valid pattern? Well, I guess it's something useful to hold in mind, but, like, the sort of, like, uh, you know, vindication by way of historical record is very fraught with problems. Um... Uh, because, y y again, we just don't have the requisite variety to be futurologists. Um, uh, it's, it's, Jake, or sorry, Shane, go ahead. It, it, it's, it's like looking for vindication in fucking gospel, right? Like, or in the in yeah, scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, re it's reactive and reactionary, right? To go, like, scurrying off to find your copy of the Bible to dig out the fucking passage that, like, does damage to whoever you're trying to damage, right? Yeah, and yet, like, I don't feel that history is, is a fully reactive or reactionary endeavor so it's 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 a very strange thing that keeps keeps drawing us back to history because like you know like i i keep thinking back to puya saying that like history is just empirical it doesn't have any value because it's uh. it's 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 just a it's just an enumeration of facts um <laughs> Like only, only the historiography has any value, and the and the, the history is kind of useless. And it's like, yeah, but like, history's really compelling, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like history, like really fires up the imagination in interesting ways. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, let's let's go to Jake and then to Matt. Yeah. No, I think I think you're very right. Like, I think that is one of the main benefits of history is sort of that imagination. And, you know, the further, like you, the, the closer you get to like the current day, the more useful it is. And the less you could start calling it history and more just like current events. Right. And then it kind of takes on a different connotation because there's an assumption that like, you're kind of still within the same sort of, uh, within the same sort of moment that like produced, produced what happened before. But, but of course there's always some differences and, and the, the thing happening is, is also like the change, right? But I think I think definitely the point about like you know like all of the stuff beer is saying as like a way to sort of understand the potentiality that exists within the organization and then like working to uh, actualize that um, and you know like or yeah yeah both the potentiality and the actuality and then the sort of like you know are you there yet or not. Um, is really important. And I think, like, it gets to that whole, like, like, having the requisite variety allows you to really understand the sort of, like, both the potential and the actual, because you don't have to, like, you don't lose the, the understanding of what's really going on at the, like, sort of ground level if you've got the requisite variety to, like, transfer that information up to the, like, management side. Um, so I think it's really, like, a really, really key thing. Um, and yeah, for, for sure that like history, like people are just trying to find a magic bullet. And, and also I think people just want to, <laughs> there's also probably a little bit of like not wanting to really face head on the reality of the situation. Cause it's fucking bleak <laughs> and it's depressing and it sucks. And we're like, it's, there's a lot of shit happening now and it sucks, but that also, you know, there's also obviously the potential for some great things to happen. And I think that is like, before that's where history is really useful is the like like the knowledge that like people have done shit before that is good especially now when there's so few of that going on there's so little of that going on uh it, it really does stir the imagination and makes you think like okay well you know what there's nothing fundamentally different between the people that like went through like the russian revolution or, or any revolution than there are to the people now so you know, I, and I think it's it's for people, especially like people who are newer to the left, it's like a really good way of like breaking through that kind of um, capitalist realism or like sort of depressing nature of our reality to be like, well, actually, like, look, people have fought and won before, even if it didn't work out in the long run, like that still means we can fight and change things now, you know, and, and we won't fuck it up like they did before. Right? And, and part of it is studying that history to know what they did wrong, but again, like, like fear says, and like, you know, like it has been brought up, it, you know, there is, it's, it's of limited use, uh, to really like the closer you look. And I think especially the more you're actually concerned with like 
really trying to change things with an understanding of like, you're not just like, theoretically, how would we change things in the United States? You know, it, that's a much different question than like, all right, I'm trying to change things and I've tried this way and it didn't really work. Like how do, wh what is another way we can try it? Because, because that ultimately like you have a way of proving it correct, right? You have a way of trying that out. Like you try it, you like do it. And if it works, then you were correct. Right. You know, it's like, um, ultimately reality is like reality is the like ultimate, uh, barometer, you know, like you can, you can be as theoretical and as theoretically correct. You can be correct in theory all you want. And then if it's not correct in practice, right. Then, I mean, plenty of Marxists have, have talked about this, the sort of praxis, you know, um, which is where I think like studying more, like sort of, uh, revolutionary theorists is useful because there is that aim of like actually trying to do it and actually trying to enact it, you know, which is where they sort of like, there's a little bit of a break or a little bit of a difference between the sort of like just history for its own sake. Um, and then like history as like, you know, a set of practices and, and, and things that people tried in their context that you can take stuff from. And I mean, yeah, I don't know, I'm not, not saying that like history is not good or, or anything like that, but just that it's worth taking it all with a grain of salt and like being more concerned with trying to do things now in our, in our context, we need to try things in our, in our current context and not just think like, Hmm, well, how would it have been different if they had done that in their context? Or like, Hmm, what if we try the same thing they did? Cause guess what? It's not going to work. Like there's no, you know, universal, path to emancipation right it's like it's particular it's all particular and that's frustrating for people that want an easy answer um which i think is everybody <laughs> but um that's just the reality of the situation you know it's that's that's the reality of the like almost endless variety that we exist within is that it's it's something new that you can never predict and, and to try and predict it is is not going to get you anywhere i mean it's just going to get you in you just get me wrong. I mean, that's fine, but it's not going to be right. Well, it kind of makes me think about, like, the. it's very interesting that, like, Marx simultaneously put a prohibition on, you know, uh, speculation about the future. Uh, and also, like, in the 18th Brumaire, attacks the reliance on the poetry of the past and says we need to use the poetry of the future. So it's 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 a very <laughs> it's a very <laughs> complex situation we find ourselves in. Mar Marx had ADHD, so that kind of flip flopping makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, we shouldn't LARP, uh, you know, past revolutions, but we also shouldn't just like make a predictive blueprint for the future because we don't have a requisite variety. So that puts us in a curious position. Um, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, revolution isn't tic-tac-toe or blackjack where, you know, like, yeah, you sit down at the blackjack table, like, it is a solved game. Well, like, there is an objectively right um, uh, move to make. I think it's fair to say we, we, we don't have that formula yet. And, you know, the, I, I think when it comes to history, I mean, uh, I think it's a good hypothesis generator. You know, I mean, it's 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 a it's a good way to see. You know, well, this outcome is possible. You know, I mean, let's look into you know like uh, uh, things that are like that. And uh, you know, if if if, if, just, if there's like something that's kind of specific that you know um, uh, we've seen happen before, like uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the the weak point of the whole uh, uh, Chilean thing was the whole like you know actually keeping power part. Well, you know, and so maybe uh, uh, trying to reverse engineer you know uh, uh, the successful revolutions that you know whatever else they did, whatever else they did after they seized power. They didn't actually seize and hold power, you know, like, like reverse engineering, what like those things. And, you know, like, a, like with an eye to reverse engineer, like not just to, you know, like copy, like you know, the exact things they did, you know, like, like what, you know, laws of motion can be derived from uh, um, how, how these things um, uh, have, have played out. Sure. We sort of see that with Beer's discussion about the categorization and reaction to novelty. Um, in, in a crisis. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, um, I think that's going to do it for the reading uh, today. We and made for it. the book, we finished. Congratulations, everybody. I, uh, yeah. Hooray. Um, almost a fucking year. Like, almost a year. Yeah. I think we've given Tom a run for his money for long reading groups. I think he, he doesn't get to lord that over us anymore with like long-running reading groups. 
That's right. It's true. Uh-huh. It's true. It's very true. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, next session uh, will be thoughts on the book in general. So to prep for that, just kind of maybe, I don't know, reread the, uh, the section intros. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe try to just jot down some thoughts uh, and we'll have a talk because there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, delicious to all the discussions. So it's, no. It's the, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, next session. Did you start oh. now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, you might want to listen to the section summary discussions. Uh, that might be mm-hmm. useful. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, see you next week. And, uh, thanks for participating once again. Wonderful. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.